All right, well, once again, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to be studying the New Testament book of Ephesians. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 3. If you'd like to use your phone or your tablet or iPad, that's fine too. And if you don't have a Bible, no worries. We All the verses will be on the screen behind me. So no worries, we got you. But if you do have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians uh, chapter 3, and let's jump right in with verses 1 and 2. Let's see what Paul wrote down and wants us to know. So he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. So Paul, let's be honest, starts out this in a kind of little bit of an odd way. He starts out by calling himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, in truth, what he's saying, he's not actually a prisoner of Christ Jesus, like he got arrested and Jesus is going to put him in cuffs like on cops or something like that. But rather, he was arrested and jailed for preaching about Jesus Christ. He was preaching to the Gentiles. That's what he's referring to. But because he begins this way, the, way he, the reason he starts out this way, he wants to make sure that we understand the mission that he's been given, which is to take the message to the Gentiles, has cost him dearly. Now, he's not doing this. He's not saying this to make us feel sorry for him. Rather, he wants us to understand for ourselves that there is a cost to taking the message out into the world. But at the same time, and this is why he's saying it, it's totally worth it. It's totally worth it, right? So watch his words closely. As we study the rest of this chapter, look for his words, and you're going to see there's absolutely no regret whatsoever. Rather, what he's doing us is building us up so we have the courage to do the exact same thing, right? So if you think about it, there's two points. Number one, persecution is real. It happens. It happened to him. But that persecution, not even the slightest bit, dulled his joy and his excitement for continuing to spread the gospel, even while he was incarcerated himself, right? So we get to understand that. That's really a good way to start out this uh, chapter. Now, the Bible actually records three times Paul was arrested. He may have actually been arrested more than that, but there's only three times listed in the Bible. And in this particular case, uh, he was probably under house arrest. And some of the commentaries I've read that describe this was likely what he would have been confined to his house with a couple of guards. And during the day, he would have been free to move within his own house. But at night, he would have been put in chains so he couldn't sneak away under the cover of darkness. Now, one of the reasons we know Paul, the reasons we know he wasn't losing hope because of this arrest of, of what he says in verse 2. He says, uh, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. So he's arrested for speaking about Jesus, and what's he doing? He's writing a letter about Jesus <laughs> to go out further, right? So the message that he was given is to spread the news. Paul's saying God gave it to him, also knowing that he would be persecuted, that he might be arrested, but God gave it to him all the same, right? And we know he was arrested several times. But what's interesting about Paul is each time he got arrested, he was likely that guy, as he's getting put in handcuffs, he's talking to the cops behind him. Hey, did you hear about Jesus? By the way, this is for you too. Did you know? And once he's behind bars, he's going, hey, guys, did you hear about Jesus? Well, he would use all of that. To, the very reason he got arrested, he's doing it in the cop car on the way to jail, still talking about Jesus, right? So what he's saying is God knew this. This was always part of the plan. His job was simply to spread the message. And that's what he's saying, right? 
So let's move into verses 3 and 5. And now he's going to start to speak on what this plan is, and most importantly, how does it relate to us? What does it look like for us? Okay, so verses 3 and 5. He says, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So Paul's starting to open this door, like give us a crack, uh, open the door and give us a vision into this wider plan for God's plan for the gospel. And so he s- describes this revelation that it was made known to him. And this revelation, it, it's, it's big, it's important, it's wonderful. In addition to using the word revelation, Paul, so Paul also uses the word mystery. Now, uh, mystery in the modern English language can refer to stuff that's sinister and dark, kind of like a crime mystery, a murder mystery. Anybody watch those crime shows on cops on TV? You know, cold case files, right? Those mysteries. This is, this is not the type of mystery Paul is talking about. The Greek word mysterion, which is where we get the word mystery, uh, it actually means great knowledge that's being put out to the community, put out to the world, right? So it has a good connotation. It has nothing to do with in modern English, well, we, we, we use the word mystery in different ways. So Paul's stating that God provided this great, valuable information that's important for everybody, and he's revealing it, right? And it's something that we need to pay attention to. Now, personally, I love where he says in verse 4 that he says, In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So in reading this tells us that he's in jail for speaking about Jesus, writing a letter with his own hand to tell more people about Jesus Christ. So this was a real letter he wrote to the church in a town called Ephesus. This wasn't a verbal story. He took time to write this with his own hand. And here's what's totally awesome. There was a time, a long time ago, in the church of Ephesus, they had this actual letter that he wrote with his own hand while he was locked up. And the same is actually true with all the books of the New Testament. There was a period in history a long time ago, 2,000 years ago, where the early churches had the book of Colossians in, in that town. Philippians, the book that was written by James, John, Mark, Luke. Those were actual real documents that were written down. And if you went to some of those churches, you could actually read with your own eyes what they wrote. And there's actually references to these early documents that they were real. There was a guy named Bishop Peter of Alexandria, and he was head of this school in Alexandria to raise up disciples. And the school was actually started by Mark, who wrote the book of Mark. And this guy, Bishop Peter, he lived around the year 300 A.D., and we have one of his letters he wrote to someone to try to bring them back because they were getting kind of weird in the stuff that they believed. And one of the reasons he gives them is he says, listen, we have the authentic letters meaning we have the actual letter. You can go to these churches and read what the disciples actually wrote with their own hand. Why would you get pulled into some false teaching? Why would you go off astray? And there's another reference we have from a guy named Tertullian. You want to Google that name too? He lived around the year 200 AD, and he said the the same thing. Only he listed more. He said, we have the authentic documents. And he lists uh, in the churches here in Corinth, Philippi, Ephesus, and Thessalonica. So that's the book of Thessalonians, Philippians. He's saying you can go to these churches and you can see the actual handwritten documents. 
And I'm kind of one of those guys, I kind of nerd out on that stuff. I just think that it's so awesome. You could have taken a tour and actually seen the original documents, right? So let's jump back into the book of Ephesians. Because we need to talk about something that Paul said in verse 3, which he says, A mystery made known to me my revelation. And when Paul says mystery was made known to him, he didn't mean that he was the only person in history to get the message of Jesus Christ. What he's referring to specifically is his calling to the Gentiles. All the disciples understood that Jesus was the Messiah, but if you really read the New Testament, specifically the book of Acts, you're going to see originally the disciples only went to the Jews initially. Paul was the one who was called and went to the Gentiles, and that's what he's referring to. And of course, over time, the disciples eventually went out to everybody as well, but Paul was originally just went to the Gentiles. And what part of his message, he actually wrote about this also in the book of Romans, and there's a piece in Romans 11 where one of the things he tells the Gentiles is part of this revelation that he was revealed, he, he states directly that originally the Gentiles were the ones that were disobedient, and God gave his message, the Old Testament, the prophets, and Jesus Christ to the, Gentile, to the Israelites. So the Gentiles were blessed to the Israelites. Now with the message he's taking out, he's taking out to the world, he says, now the Gentiles have received the message of Jesus Christ. They are to be a blessing to the Israelites. Because most of the Israelites don't believe in Jesus. So originally we were blessed through them. Now he's saying God wants to use us to shine this light on Jesus, to bring the Israelites in. So it's a really, it's a cool message when we understand that, right? And so now that Paul's opened this door and he's revealed what was revealed to him, let's spend a little more time on what he's talking about and what, he, what we need to take from this is how we look to the outside world, right? Because Paul does two things. He wants to bring new people to the faith, and then those people, once they come to believe, he wants to raise them up and turn them into true disciples, Okay? Let's see what he says in verses 6 and 7. He says, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. So what Paul says here is that the Gentiles and the Israelites were actually members of the same body. Where you actually, we are united, we're one, we're together. And this, what this centers on is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Right now, what's interesting about Paul's message is that Jesus Christ, he's not ours to claim. He's not the Israelites to claim. Jesus is the Messiah. He belongs to all of us. We belong to him, this blessing that we have. But with this blessing, each one of us has a role. And the reason Paul, he makes this clear that we're heirs together with the Israelites, if you really think about it, it's very easy for us to think that we're, and to feel that we are separate from the Israelites. For example, when I mention the word Israelite, you automatically go, oh yeah, we're brothers and sisters. We're one. We worship together. We know each other. We eat together. Or no, do you feel the exact opposite? I don't know who that is. I don't know who those are. They're not us. We feel like we're on the same team, right? We don't feel, I'm sorry, we don't feel like we're on the same team. And the reasons for that are many, but mainly it has to do with what us humans tend to do with God's Word. We put our finger, fingertips, our fingerprints all over it. Humans love to break up in group, groups, denominations. We like conservative church. We like liberal church. 
We like rock and roll church. No, we like the very serious, everybody be quiet kind of music with the, you know, the hymns and all that kind of stuff. There's, I mean, Aaron, if you ever talk to someone else um, who goes to a different church or different denomination, this is going to sound funny, but it's totally true. I know people think, well, we're all going to heaven. But when there's a line and they open the door, my denomination is going to be blunt. You're laughing because why? It's true. It's Even if no one says it directly, we clearly imply that. We love to do that. We lo- It happens all the time. I mean, I grew up in the Lutheran church. There's different kinds of Lutherans. Did you know that? There's different kinds of Methodists. There's different kinds of Baptists. It, it's every, we, we love that kind of stuff. So what Paul's doing is bringing us back to the central point that this is God's church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's not the Israelite church. This is God's church. And Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And whether we notice it or not, whether we realize it or not, we are actually one with the Israelites. And he never wants us to forget that. All of this is built on Jesus Christ. And as members of God's church, we have a role. It's our job to reach out to the world. And that includes the Israelites to help shine a light on Jesus Christ, to bring them to the faith as well. And his other big point is that just because somebody doesn't believe, they're not our enemies. They're not our adversaries. It doesn't always make them not on the opposite team. They just simply don't believe. So our role is that we should always be patient, kind, understanding, and forgiving, always looking for an opportunity to share Jesus Christ, you know, open that door and have that invitation. And it is always there. Right, and this is important to know in Paul's time, 2,000 years ago, and it's very important to know now. And this is so important, in fact, Jesus talked about this. And you probably heard this description that he gives, um, and it highlights, importantly, how we're to look to the outside world, how people see us, and how they get this vision of how the church should be. So as we read this, think about yourself, and then we're going to talk about this as well. So it's Matthew 5, 14 to 16. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on on its stand and it gives light to everyone in their house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So this is Jesus talking. This description shows how he expects, how he wants his church to illuminate, to shine in dark places. And Paul takes this idea further and reminds us that we are part of the same body with the Israelites, whether we realize it or not, whether they realize it or not. So we need to shine brightly to the world and to them to help them see the light and bring them back to Jesus Christ. Now, it's a perfect time to share this passage from 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter takes this idea of being a shining light and he puts it in real terms. Because if I say, hey, make sure you shine brightly as a Christian, do you know exactly what that means? You're like, well, kind of, maybe. Like, we don't have our own opinions. Okay, what, how, how do we actually do that? And so this teaching from Peter is really good. So let's read 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16, because he really explains it well. He says, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asked you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ 
may be ashamed of their slander. So Peter's first instructions are simply to be prepared. That means have an idea of what you're going to say. Specifically, why do you have hope in Jesus Christ? That's, that's what he says. Why do, you have, why do you believe? So, for example, he doesn't say, hey, you've got to have these five verses memorized. You need to be able to explain sanctification. Go. What's it mean? You don't have, that's not what he's saying to do. He's saying, why do you have hope in Jesus Christ? Why do you have hope? Not, hey, this is what I think why Ryan, Pastor Ryan, I think he said this once. This is why. Why do you believe? Because you can tell your own story about why you have hope, why you're, why you're, why you're here today. And when you do this, he says, be gentle, be patient, be kind, be understanding. Do it with a clear conscience. It means don't be pushy or overbearing. Don't be judgmental. Right? And this is important because if you've ever done this before, some people are going to love to hear what you have to say. Some people don't care. Some people are somewhere in the middle. Okay, you got 30 seconds, and then my mind is going to be like, I'm thinking about golfing later. So make it quick and make it good. Some people are just going to say no thanks. The point is, is that you open that door, that invitation, and then it's always there. Sometimes it might take days, weeks, months. Sometimes it make years, takes years or decades. All of that is okay. That's an invitation to Jesus Christ. And it always remains open. The last thing that Paul wants us to know is that he said there was to have a clear conscience. And this is important because we need to be straight up truthful. We should always make sure that we're completely honest. What the Bible actually says, that it's transparent, and it's going to stand up to scrutiny. Meaning, don't say things that are partially true. Or it's a true for this group, but not this group. This is popular with Republicans. This is popular with Democrats. I'm kind of over here today. No, I'm kind of over here today. N- none of that. And if you do it right, with the expectation. See, here's the goal. What you say, you want the person to look at it. With a microscope. You want them to mull it over and think about it days and weeks. Because if you say what's true, what's actually the Bible says, you want them to focus 100% on what Jesus said. Think about it. Shine that light on it. Because you know what they're going to do? They're going to be shining a light on Jesus Christ. That's exactly what you want. So Paul's saying, be prepared. Right? And it's a great way to do that. Now, since we're talking about shining or being this light for others and sharing about Jesus Christ, Paul also takes this time to humble himself, and this is important too. So let's read that. It's in verses 8 and 9. He says, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. So Paul does something a little different here. He's making a point about his status, his rank in the church. And this is coming from the guy who wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament. He's not saying, well, I'm pretty important. You know, there's 12 disciples. They didn't make a 13th, but if there was one, it'd be me. I wrote more than the other disciples did. Did you know that? He's not saying anything like that. He's saying the exact opposite. He says, of all the Lord's people, like this was everybody here, 
we all got in a line, he'd say, I'd be at the very end. Everyone is 100% in front of me. I'm the back of the line. And this is important for us to understand because it's so easy for us humans to mess this up, to get our fingerprints on things. Like we joked about earlier with denominations, and well, my denomination's a little ahead of yours, and you guys are fine, but you know, we're way up there. You'll get in a little later. The gospel, we do that. The gospel message of Jesus Christ, even calling ourselves disciples, is not something that we own. We don't possess it. It's not ours. The message we were given, the free gift of Jesus Christ, is simply a gift. That's what it is. And it's ours to share freely. And we don't deserve it any more than anyone else. This is an important point to remember. This applies to even to people who may clearly sin more than you do. For example, uh, I've done a number of Bible studies in the jail and prisons, and I've, during, in those times, I've met people who've done things, some awful things, repeatedly. I've met people who spent more time in jail than they ever were free, even when they were young. I don't deserve Jesus more because I don't have a rap sheet. We deserve Jesus the exact same. What Paul is doing is taking it further and saying, yeah, and I'm even behind them, Right? And that's a really, that's a beautiful message. Think about when Jesus, uh, when he was crucified. Uh, there was two people that were crucified with him, two, two other criminals, right? And you know, think about it, how many people had the urge to go talk to those two men while they were incarcerated to share about Jesus Christ? Or how about when they were carrying their cross just like Jesus was on the hill to, uh, to Golgotha? How many people had the urge to take one last minute to talk to them about Jesus. Where most people are like, they deserve it. Ugh, they deserve it. They had already written them off. But yet if you think about it, who needs it more than anybody right then? They do. They do. They need it the most. So Paul's only goal is for people to know Jesus Christ. And he's going to make sure his ego is so far out of it, he will never, ever affect their chances of knowing Jesus Christ. And we have a mindset like that. It totally changes how we see the world and this gift that we have in Jesus Christ. And this isn't the only time Paul makes a point like this. He does this in Philippians chapter 2. And this is a really heavy-duty verse. So let's read it and then give it a moment to sink in. So it's Philippians 2, uh, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And you guys read the last part out loud. But in... Is that vague? Any way you can worm out of that one? Any loopholes? Pretty darn uncomfortably clear, right? So read that again quietly to yourself, and then don't go to another thought. Just read it, and let it just hang there in the room. The more, if you're honest, the more that you think about that, hopefully you can see all the ways, even small ways, our egos, our biases, our own thoughts, our own groups get in the way of Jesus Christ, spreading that message. If we're honest, it's true for me too. But at the same time, if we really take to heart what he said, if we do exactly what Paul says, think about how we would stand out from the rest of the world in a good way. Think of how 
good we would make Jesus look to the outside world. Think about this. Mind blown, ready? What if everybody who claimed to be a Christian did that exceptionally well? How different would the world view Christianity? I mean, it would be profound. It would, it would change things completely, right? That's the point. That's the point. If everybody who claims, Christian, who claims to be a Christian looks exactly like the people who don't, what does Jesus matter? He doesn't. Like the, the, the example I like to uh, give is, let's assume every, this is one town here and this is another town here. Everybody over here claims to be Jesus Christ, claims to follow Jesus Christ, you're true disciples, all that kind of stuff. Everybody over here, nobody believes. If you have the exact same crime rates, exact same rates of uh, divorce, drug use, prostitution, whatever, name it, theory, indistinguishable, Jesus Christ means what? Nothing. He, he matters. It always matters. We should be different in a very, very good way. And so this is where we come to one of our main, our main point for today. This is where Paul is taking us. A true disciple is humble, selfless, and counts all others as more significant than themselves. Now let that sink in again for a moment. That's heavy-duty stuff. That should be the template for how we judge our own behavior, how we're doing. That's the goalpost. That's where we're going to be the most successful. Now, as we finish uh, the teaching today, as we go through the last few verses, we're going to see Paul go a little deeper deeper into why that matters. Why we need to follow God's plan as he laid out, not according to what we think we need to do. Let's go to verses 10 and 11. His intent, this is God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now let's dissect this a little bit because this is important and Paul chose his words carefully. Paul says God's intent, which means his purpose, his desire, his plan, his plan whatever way you want to describe it, is that through the church. And when I say through the church, everyone do like this, point at yourself. And I'm watching so I can see if you do it or not. I'm watching. God's intent was through the church, which is what? This building. And everybody came here today to church, which means this applies to you. Was that Jesus Christ would be made known to the rulers and the heavenly authorities. Now, if you really think about that, each one of you should be going, whoa, 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 whoa. That that is some heavy-duty stuff. I just came to church today. I'm going to lunch later. I'm playing golf later. I don't know what that means. All right? But you have to, let's be honest, and this is Paul's point, and this is the point of what we're talking about. You entered God's church. It's not my church. It's not Pastor Craig's church. It's not Calvary church. This is God's church. And God has a plan, which is to take the message of his son to the world. We're to take it with us wherever we go. 
The goal of the church is to make Jesus known. And like we said a few minutes ago, whatever we do, we need to do it with humility. We need to be selfless. We need to consider all people as better than ourselves. See, that is a profound lifestyle if you think about it, right? That's some heavy-duty stuff. But yet that's the recipe for success. That's the church that Jesus laid out. That's our calling. And Paul stated, our calling is to represent Jesus Christ to the rulers and heavenly realms. Now, if you're paying attention, you should be going, how do I do that? What does that mean? That's a, that's a great question. The answer would be, we live it out here on earth. Angels and demons can see and hear everything you do and see how that you live. So if we live out the gospel here on earth, we show the world and the heavenly realms that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and we truly believe in him. Now, there's a very interesting passage in Hebrews uh, 13, 2 that we need to read because it's one of these that I, when I really started to grow in my faith and I was in high school and I saw this, I'm like, what? Hebrews 13, 2. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without ever knowing it. Let that sink in. You guys realize what that means? Simply by being kind and showing hospitality to complete strangers, whether you think they deserve it or not, you may have actually shown hospitality to an angel. That means angels, heavenly beings are among us, also demons, and when we live out the mission of Jesus Christ, just live it out, it impacts them as well. That's why it's important that we get this right, that we live as a Christian all the time, not just for a few hours on Sunday. Discipleship is a lifestyle of learning from Jesus Christ, always learning as myself, when I study the Bible regularly, and then we follow in his footsteps. It's simply how you exist. And as Paul started out this chapter, there's going to be ups and downs. It happens. There's going to be challenges. But a life in Jesus Christ and the salvation we get through him is totally worth it. Now let's read the last two verses uh, for today from chapter 3. And we're going to see what else Paul wants us to know because it is just as important. Verses uh, 12 and 13. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. So when Paul says, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence... That sounds great, but that's not that shocking to everybody here, right? Sounds great, but what does that mean? That doesn't sound like it's such a big thing today as it did in Paul's day. Back then in Paul's day, this was huge. This was different. Nobody thought this was okay. It didn't enter their minds. The entire Old Testament, if you study it, is about the Israelites being separate from God. If you remember what happened to Adam and Eve when they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, did God put a revolving door that they could just go back in anytime they want? What did he do? He put an angel with a flaming sword to guard them from ever coming back. That, it's not, and I say, it's not just a sword. It's a flaming sword. I mean, come on. It's like even a ninja with guns and all kinds of stuff, right? And then if you think about the holy temple, when God gave them uh, uh, the instruction on how to build the temple, when they built the temple, 
even that was sectioned off in a lot of ways. There's an, an area only the Gentiles can go. There's an area for the Jewish women, an area for the men, and there's an area for the priests. And then there was an area that was off limits to everybody but the high priest one time a year with a whole lot of special stuff. And if he went in at the wrong time, what would happen to him? Death. He would be dead. He wouldn't get extra PTO or anything like that. He would be dead. Getting too close to God because you were sinful could cost you your life. And there's this story uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 6 uh, that really highlights this well. And the story is the Israelites are going along the road. King David is with them. They have the Ark of the Covenant. It's on this cart, and it's being pulled by um, these o- this oxen. And they're going along, and it, it sounds like they're singing and dancing. Like, we're doing great. God's with us. We're the Israelites. Woo, we've got the Ark of the Covenant. Fabulous, right? And they're just going along. And at one point, it sounds like the... Uh, the oxen start to stumble. They have a misstep, and the ark is on this cart, and it starts to rock like it's going to fall off. And there's a guy standing near that. He sees it, and he reaches out, and he stabilizes the ark. And the text tells us that God's anger burned against him. His name was Uzzah, and he was struck dead. And he just drops dead right there in the middle of the road. And the scene is so dramatic. King David... King David goes from celebrating, now he's terrified of the ark. He wants nothing to do with it. They were taking the ark to Jerusalem. So guess what King David says? He's not going to Jerusalem. There's a guy who lives nearby. His name is Obed. And they don't really understand how they decided on poor Obed, but they take it to Obed's house. Give it to him. Let's see what happens. And then we'll maybe go to Jerusalem. They take it to, and it stays there, and apparently Obed does the right thing, shows that respect his house is blessed. And at some point, King David, a few months later, gets the courage up to go get it and then take it to Jerusalem. But I, you can bet they're all like. The point of the story is humans were so separate from God, you getting too close could cost you your life. It was, this, is, this is how they live. Because you know any one of you guys can come up here and touch this area and nothing's going to happen to you, right? It even sounds funny for me to say that. That was huge for them back then. So when Paul says, because of Jesus Christ, we can approach God with freedom and confidence, that's enormous. That's huge. We have never known that fear. We have never had to worry about that because of Jesus Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Jesus paid the price for our sins. That's all gone. That's huge. That's worth celebrating. John 3.16 is a fabulous verse. One of the best things about it, it says, whoever believes is saved. That's it. Whoever believes. Right? And the final verse we're going to talk about today, I just love how he describes this. I love it because Paul's going to make doubly sure of all the negative stuff he's covered. He's saying, it's okay. It's for you guys. Everything he went through is worth it. Don't be discouraged. Because you remember when he started out, he says he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Right? He's had a lot of trouble. But he's saying, don't worry. Everything is worth it. Right? Uh, he actually finishes with the words, it's for your glory. Now that kind of sounds strange when it's translated in modern English. But he makes a good point. He's saying, when and if we're persecuted for following Jesus Christ, truly following Jesus Christ, we should be happy. We should celebrate. The reason we should do that is because the sinful world 
is rejecting us because we're like Jesus Christ. The world recognizes that we are following him. And that's a good thing. The world doesn't want to admit its sin. The world will very much fight against the concept of sin. So when we follow Jesus Christ the way he intends, we may experience the same thing. And we can, again, take glory in this. We can celebrate this in a way because the, uh, the world identifies us as a follower of Jesus Christ. So it's a compliment in a sense, right? But along with this idea of being persecuted for Christ, there's also a warning we get too. Uh, Peter actually talks about this. I don't have a slide, but I'm going to read it to you. It's in 1 Peter 4, 15. He says, we can't claim persecution for following Jesus Christ if we're a criminal or a meddler. He uses the word meddler, meaning you may feel persecuted because it's you broke the law. People may not like you and they're pushing you back against you because you're meddling around. You're not doing it right. And the reason this matters is when we choose to stand for Jesus Christ, we don't go along with the world. We follow Jesus Christ exactly. Right? The only way to be saved is through him. And so this is what this all comes down to. This is why this matters. This is why Paul wrote this. The saving work of Jesus Christ is for everybody. It's for everyone. But each one of us has to make the choice to approach God. Each one of us has to make the choice to believe in Jesus Christ. And we can do that without fear, without shame, without worry. But we have to make the decision. I can't make the decision for you. You can't make it for family members or friends. Each one of us makes our own decision. And so today, we always want to give everybody that chance. We want everyone to have the opportunity to accept Jesus, to invite them into their heart, to become part of God's family. And one of the ways we do that, in this prayer that we're going to say in a minute, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ in your life, we invite you to do that. All you have to do is repeat the words that I say quietly. Whatever you want to say is between you and God. But we want to give you that opportunity to do that. Know that it's free, it's for you, and God wants you to be saved, but only you can make that decision. But at the same time, if you already believe, we're going to pray that God uses you. He increases your faith. He turns you into that light on the hill who represents Jesus Christ just as he is. So you can be used by God to help new people come to the faith. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you raised him from the dead. Today I ask Jesus to come into my life and to make me new. I ask him to forgive me. I ask him to save me. And I ask him to guide my steps for the rest of my life. Father, today, each one of us, we pray to be used by you. We pray that you will increase our faith. We pray that you will give us courage and strength and determination to endure all the trials that life is going to throw at us. Even more than that, may everything that we go through, good and bad, may it strengthen our faith and our trust in you. Father, we pray that all people will come to know you and love you. It's only through you and the saving grace of your son that we even have hope and that we're saved. So, Father, we further pray that as our faith grows, each one of us, that you will use us as you see fit. Use us for the gifts that you've given us. Use us to expand your kingdom, to be that light for others. 
And Father, we thank you for the life that you've given each one of us. We thank you for your church. Most of all, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we ask all these things. Amen. Thank you.